You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Todd Cashton, award-winning author of The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. We're really talking about principled rebels. And when we talk about insubordination, we're talking about most of us live in these social hierarchies. And there's the idea that started in the military and still goes on where someone at a lower rank questions or challenges a command or a norm at someone at a higher rank, that's considered an act of insubordination. And one of the main problems of that, I think anyone who's listening can acknowledge, is it depends on the quality of the idea of the person who's raising the question. Why did you decide to write this book now about insubordination? So it took about six years. So this is before Trump became president, before COVID, before the moral panic about iPhones. And I just realized there was this whole body of literature on minority influence that no one had put together into a book for the general public. And considering the racial reckoning that occurred during COVID-19, the extra attention to diversity, to disadvantaged groups, every moment of society, it just feels like it's more and more relevant of what I've been working on. If you don't have the numbers, if you lack status or you lack power, the way to be persuasive towards a group is much different than if you do have the title or are socially attractive in that group. The key is I stress tested everything that I study, which is would this intervention work on being influential if you were in a corporation, if you were in a parent-teacher meeting, if you were on a sports team and you thought that there was you know, excessive homophobia or sexism in the locker room? And it kept on being that a lot of these interventions end up being very effective. And they start with really acknowledging how can we modify the norms to be respective of views that are different from what the majority considers valid. And for you personally, you've been questioning norms. You tell certain stories, you're questioning your rabbi, you're questioning from a young age. How did you cultivate that? And how do you think that that was passed on to you as a young person? Yeah, part of it's temperament. I mean, you find out from developmental psychologists at the age of six months, you can determine whether 75% of kids tend to be approach-oriented or avoidance-oriented when they're exposed to something that's really novel. Back in the mid-20th century, researchers would put a little babies into rooms with these robots that would shoot off electricity, look like little lightning bolts coming out of these robots, or have a stranger with a really bushy mustache and beard come in there and see how these little babies would respond. And you were able to classify a lot of these babies as being, they are willing to approach them, this novel robot or the stranger, or they would be in the corner sulking in tears and, you know, putting some action in their diaper. And then the question was, to what does this predict? And you found that temperament being approach-oriented predicted a resilience to having anxiety disorders at the age of 13 and 21. So part of it's temperament, but a, a lot of it is culturally, do you get incentivized or punished for deviating from the crowd? And I happen to be fortunate in that I had the type of teachers and the type of peers that rewarded that. And it gets down to one of the core interventions, which is in your group, whatever that group is, it could be a school, it could be a corporation, it could be an athletic team, are the norms about cohesion, positivity, and unanimity? Or is it about critical thinking, independence, and the quality of the group's decision-making. And if it's the latter, you're going to get the benefits of dissenting views that's going to infuse more creativity and divergent thinking. 
one of the first ones that comes to mind is thinking about what is your motivation for the conversation? So a lot of people want to win and persuade other people. And I've been using the word persuasion quite regularly, but the other one is having a dialogue and a conversation and not assuming that you have received and attained the perspective of the other party that you're with. So you're trying to learn something as opposed to persuade. And there's this great work by my colleague, Francesca Gino at Harvard, showing that when people have the motivation to learn as opposed to persuade, it is visible to other people. It changes the way that you ask questions and receive information. And so it leads to more of a interactive collaborative element. Because one of the things is people that disagree with you on these issues are not necessarily your enemies or nemeses. You just have to understand what are their values and what's their end game. And when you ask people what their end game, you often find, you know, even things as toxic and challenging as the abortion debate. When you start to ask people what people's end game are, who are on the other side of you, you find that most people support women and most people want to reduce the number of operations that occur in the world, but their strategies and tactics for getting there are different. But there's something to be said about learning about the end game about people where you can start there and work backwards, where you can find points at least, not where you necessarily agree, but you can understand their position so you can actually get into a room and try to develop legislation or try to challenge legislation and be on the same team. I would say is that you should be asking people and you should figure out for yourself what the end game is. So, you know, in my world, in organizations and in university and school settings, when you're talking about diversity initiatives, one of the first questions I always ask is, what do we want it to look like if everything works out exactly as planned? And most people, just as you say, have no answer to this. And this is very problematic. It's problematic to be a sustainable enterprise. It's problematic in terms of winning detractors. And it's problematic in terms of building into the culture because the next question after what's it going to look like if everything worked out is how are we going to provide evidence that it worked? And then we can reinvest resources into something else. And a lot of people have problems with this. So you keep it vague. So it says the diversity problem can never be resolved. It'll always be there. And one way of holding onto that view is never pointing out what the end game is and never pointing out what evidence would say that we actually are making some serious inroads. And this is not just for the diversity topic. This is for every issue. And kids should be asking their parents when they tell them that, listen, I'm going to ground you for two months. What's your end game? You know, what's the purpose of this strategy to keep me away from my friends for three and a half weeks for whatever transgression they engage in? And if parents can't answer that question, they lose ground in terms of being a viable, trustworthy authority figure. Exactly. And you can use a comparison to a, say, incarceration. That's a kind of mild form of, you know, familial <laughs> temporary incarceration. But what do we mean by that? So how are these systems of incarceration or education? How are they serving us? What is the point for you? You're an educator. What is the goal of education and being a truly educated person? Oh, my God. I love where your brain is going. So I don't know if you know, this is the cause that's most near and dear to me is the criminal justice system. And I think there, there are so many current issues right now to be considering, but one of them is people normally, they're going to re-enter society. And so when you have these questions of, should people who are incarcerated receive education, particularly be able to get high school degrees and college degrees, and there's actually so much friction and so much disagreement with that. The question is, in terms of the enemy, 
Do you want people to come out who are educated and re-enter society and can contribute something? Or do you want people who actually are the same person when they came in and perhaps actually have sense of vengeance because they feel that they were unduly and unfairly punished or punished for too long or don't know how to re-engage with members of the non-criminal members of society? And I would say, geez, how can you not root for increasing the EQ, the emotional intelligence, increasing the IQ, the analytical intelligence, problem-solving ability of people. So when they come out and they're faced with the ambiguity of, I have no money, should I go back to the criminal life or go back to the non-criminal life? They would be able to make a good decision. What's the best way of increasing people's problem-solving ability? Reading books, talking about them, having conversations is the best strategy for adults to increase their, you know, their intelligence quotient. So thinking about how do you innovate such a archaic status quo system, such as the educational system, let's just play with America for right now. How are you going to be persuasive? So again, it's not only do you want to focus on like what's the end game in terms of the skills and the knowledge base that we want for our children when they walk out of a high school or they walk out of an elementary school. Like what, what do we want them to look like? How do we want them to act? How do we want them to behave? It's hard to imagine too many people not thinking about, I want them to have social skills. I want them to have some level of character and virtue. And I want them to be able to be somewhat independent and autonomous after being given instructions or guidance on an issue. And so from there, if you start with the question of what do we want them to look like, then you can go backwards and say, to what degree are we providing the blocks and and the, you know, the training to match up with those skills. And what you find very quickly is the answer is we're not even close because we're focusing on important things, you know, math, reading, analytical skills, history. But when you get down to the metrics of what you want, how you want someone to walk through the world, you realize the fallibility of the current education system. And, and, and I really think that we really want to teach people critical thinking. And that means something Something like this, you should not know the political ideology of your teachers and at the college level, the professor. This is what I believe when you're in a classroom, such that they are facilitating conversations and dialogue as opposed to trying to sell you and put their thumb on the scale for a particular point. And that's, that is something that we're coming to grips with right now as people are really leaning with their ideologies. And I'm of the view that not all ideas are equal. But we really want to train people in terms of how can you work with information that is inferior? How can you figure out that that information is inferior? And how do you how to develop more superior information gathering strategies and decision-making processes? There's a couple of psychological elements that are embedded in your thought about climate change. One is we have to expand the timeline. And we often think about things in months and years as opposed to decades. And that's a big challenge of how human brains operate. And so if you think in the context of quarters, if you work in an organization of, in terms of building cars or building houses or building factories, then you're not thinking about that 20 years from now, you'll no longer be in the red, you'll be in the black in terms of income. But as you said, there has to be a collective willingness where we're willing to sacrifice the short-term, cheaper things for the expensive things for clean air now, knowing that the only way it gets cheaper over the course of time 
is the commons, is that the commons decides is that we are going to spend money to make money later. By spending money, we can actually continue to improve the technology. So it becomes cheaper and cheaper to have a solar powered household, you know, electric cars and an infrastructure that supports electric cars that happen there. That's the challenging part. And I think part of what I'm trying to do is educate the public about this. Part of being persuasive is acknowledging the two-sided message of trying to talk about climate change. So everyone talks about the benefits and no one talks about the costs. You have to acknowledge the short-term sacrifices financially, socially, and then value-wise. If you've identified with a group where the origin of the Fords, you know, Ford Model T cars, and if you're really a big car aficionado and you like, you know, Mustangs and BMWs and Lamborghinis, is that this is requires a deviation from an affinity that you identify with. People who are social activists about climate change, they do not acknowledge that there are psychological costs and social costs for individuals that haven't had the buy-in yet. And because of that, their critics can pounce on them immediately and say, I have too many pleasures and I have an intact family that is functioning well and my company is doing well. So why would I risk any of that for this 10, 20 year message that you're giving me. So the two-sided message is effective if you have the competence that you can talk about the logistics and the economics that are involved with these issues. Well, I don't want to give away the story in the book about my favorite English teacher from high school, but I'll say is that I had a, a mentor, Lorraine Collins at University of Buffalo. And what she was really good about was pointing that you don't need to have a match between your identity and what you study. And she was just a great model of study what attracts you and intrigues you. And even if it causes social friction, because it's not the way that other people want to see the world and then let the evidence do the talking for you. And she had this approach, just this very unique approach to everything in life. Like I remember because she was a parent and I wasn't a parent at the time in grad school. And she used to always tell me is that I'd ask her how she fits in exercise because she worked so much during the week. And she would say, I never look to drive my car to find a closed parking space when I'm going to a store. I just park as soon as I see the parking lot and that builds in my exercise. And even to this day, I always think about her every time of like, why do we all fight and waste all this gas? go back to climate change and all this time to get this proximal spot when most people value exercise and fresh air and most people don't want to waste the money on gas in the first place. And it's one of those very simplistic social norms that we just don't question. And it just gives an inroads to what else do we do so systematically and so mindlessly that we're just frittering our moments away. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.